Welcome to the Midweeks with Pastor Rob. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here electronically in my office as I record this. And thank you for letting me into your house or car or smartphone or your jog or wherever you're listening to this. I'm really glad you're here and I hope that by the grace of God you're blessed. I want to do two things this morning. Uh, I want to uh, throw in some tidbits that I glanced over during last Sunday's message, and I want to also continue talking about 1 Corinthians as we're kind of going chunk by chunk through that book of the Bible. So the message last Sunday was about um, living in a spirit of gentleness when there's relational troubles. And I didn't make up this topic, obviously, I'm just speaking the Bible, but I've gotten a lot of help recently from uh, an author in this area, and it's really impacted my life. And so I'm passing on the blessing in there. The big idea was from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where the scriptures say, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's the scripture. And the point I was making was that when problems happen, when someone's caught in a transgression, um, and especially uh, I, I'm, I'm pointing towards our close relationships, like in marriage or in family with kids or in church relationships. When transgressions happen, when trouble happens, we typically forget one of these two things. What are the two things? The, the two things are wanting to see things restored um, or forgetting our Holy Spirit-led humble gentleness. That's, that's kind of how I was looking at it. So what did it mean? Well, when you forget to want to see things extor- uh, restored, typically what we're doing is we kind of are ignoring the problem somehow. Somebody hurts us or somebody sins against us, husband or spouse uh, breaks fellowship with us by uh, a remark or an attitude or a rejection or something like that, and we just try to ignore it. We either ignore it just by saying, I don't want to talk about it. We ignore it by um, pretending it never happened. Somebody says, did I hurt you? No, no, no. Is there a problem? No, no, no. Everything's fine. Um, scripture calls us to actually seek restoration and to say, yeah, there was an issue, and uh, I, want to, I want to deal with it. I want restoration. I want this relationship restored. I want to see you restored. And so sometimes we disobey God's command by not seeking restoration when something's gone wrong by ignoring it, hoping it will get better, hoping it will go away. Now, I do know there are scriptures that call us to um, uh, just overlook offenses, to ignore offenses, but um, that kind of scripture needs to not be used as, as an excuse to not engage in the restoration that people need or relationships need. It's a call for us to be thick skinned during trouble. It's a call for us to not be, um, touchy and easily offended, easily hurt. But that isn't a call to just ignore things when there is a genuine problem because we we actually want to see someone grow. We want to see someone restored. And so if we ignore a problem, we're not actually helping them or the relationship. So that's one way to fall off the the fence. The other way to fall off the fence is to um, engage but not have a spirit of gentleness. You can have a spirit of um, just venting. We talked about being a volcano where you kind of ignore things, ignore things, ignore things, and all of a sudden... 
kaboom, you know, there's a big explosion. And you don't really care about the other person or your relationship with them. You're just getting things off your chest and your your irritation's flying, your anger's flying, whatever. Or sometimes um, we can get into the bad habit of just being a sniper where we're just observing things that are going wrong and we're just telling people, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. And there can be a sense of being right about it. There can be a sense of superiority about it, superiority. There can be all kinds of motivations, but um, we're not being Holy Spirit gentle. We're not using our words and our behaviors and our actions in order to facilitate restoration by being gentle. And instead there's kind of a uh, just out to get people or personal venting. And uh, this can happen a lot in, in marriages. It especially happens in parenting where we're trying to change children, uh, correct children, but we forget that it isn't actually about our emotions. We're actually supposed to be discipling them, helping them to grow like Christ. And to remember that we're called by God to be gentle while we do this and not rough um, just because we're bigger. So here's a little mind, uh, window into my mind. When I'm working on a sermon, I'll often kind of play devil's advocate about whether or not I'm treating scripture fairly. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to handle the word of God uh, as, a, as a faithful servant, as a reliable servant, and not just manipulate it, not, not wreck it. And so um, I'm preaching out of the Ten Commandments, this, this call uh, for children to honor their mother and their father, and I'm saying that this is, in big picture, God's saying, I'm the God of the family, I'm the God of family relationships in your marriage, in your, in your house, in your church, I'm the God of family relationships, and I'm calling you to live in a certain way. And I, I just, in my head, I'm thinking, am I taking the, the, the Ten Commandments out of context to say, hey, and, and we need to really learn how to do ongoing trouble well? And this is what came to me, okay? So I was on vacation, and I was just reading through the Bible, and I'm in Leviticus, uh, among other places, and I was reading the first, first chapters of Leviticus are all about sacrifices, and they can seem so boring, the burnt offering, the wave offering, the, the guilt offering, the praise offering. And as I was reading through it and thinking about the sermon, what this is what occurred to me. Okay, so this is God's way with Israel. He saves them by grace. Israel is in Egypt, and they're kind of idolaters. So they're not earning their salvation by be- their behavior. They're, they're, they're not full of faith. They're crying out for salvation, but their hearts are a bit idolatrous, and so they need to even... You know, they make that golden calf as soon as they get rescued because that golden calf was already in their hearts. But God is rescuing them because he's being faithful to Abraham. He promised Abraham he's going to bring them out of Egypt. And so by grace, because God made a promise, he sends Moses and he rescues Israel from Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea, which is like a picture of baptism. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them a covenant And that covenant is kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments. He establishes a relationship with these people through his commands. I will be your God. You will be my people. Here's how we're going to live together. And the first one is you're not going to have any other gods. And there's these Ten Commands that have to do with how you're going to relate to me and how you're going to relate to each other. And there's this big blowout when they make the golden calf. But God responds to the plea for mercy that Moses gives. He says, I'm not going to wipe you out. There is a plague, but that nation isn't wiped out. And maybe it's not a plague. Maybe it's just Moses and the Levites going through the people. Um, and, and 
some people are killed during that time where they're stopping the celebration of this golden calf. Um, anyhow, after that, God gives Israel the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, the presence of God comes down in the tabernacle. So this is what we have here. We have a, a rescue by grace. We have a covenant made. We have the presence of God come. And how are they going to live together? Because the people of God are sinners. God is holy and the people are sinners. How are they going to maintain their ongoing relationship? And this is how I understand it. This is what the sacrifices are about. There's going to be need for forgiveness and there's going to be need to show God the honor he deserves. And so this is kind of the big deal with Leviticus. How are we going to live together in the presence of the holy God? And so there's this progression of grace, covenant, presence, and the need for ways to um, maintain fellowship, knowing that there's going to be trouble and knowing that there's going to be sin. So there's these uh, sacrifices that are presented to them. The big sacrifice is the Day of Atonement, which is later on in the book of Leviticus. But this is what I see. This is how God is doing it. Rescue by grace, covenant formed on Sinai, presence of God in the tabernacle, and a way to live together dealing with the ongoing junk that happens. And so this is where I see, this is where the call of God comes for Christians as well. God um, saves us by grace, by sending his son Jesus to die as a sacrifice. He brings us into covenant through rebirth in the Holy Spirit, and he gives us communion, which is this ongoing sign of the covenant that you even eat into yourself, the body of Christ, you drink in the blood of Jesus, which is the covenant his presence is with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and so God is living with us. And he gives us things to maintain relationship. And God is, um, I would think, in some ways, more concerned in the New Testament about how we live together, um, more overtly concerned. A lot more of the commands are about how we live together as saved people than maybe some of them in the Old Testament. And so there's this same thing. And so in a marriage, you have a similar uh Similar thing. No, uh, husband and wife, typically they choose to get together. But that covenant um, in marriage is a covenant by grace because in one sense, you haven't kind of earned a person's life. And when a marriage happens, people are committing themselves to each other in a major way. And it's not like you've lived an entire life in order to earn the other person's um, marriage fidelity. You kind of come into it saying, I'm going to choose to be with you. And then you have presence together. You're living together under a covenant uh, that you have kind of given yourselves to each other in a way you could never really earn. And now you need ways to live together. And this command from Galatians 6.1 is the way, a way, the underline of how we live together, knowing that both people in marriage are going to sin Parents are going to sin. Children are going to sin. People in church are going to sin. How are you going to deal with it? Because our relationships are really only as good as we are able to deal with ongoing sin. That's the reality. Our, our churches are only as good as we are able to weather the storms of ongoing sin and find fellowship and unity in the midst of um, sinners sinning on their way to being transformed to be like Christ. So I'm, I'm just seeing parallels here. When God rescued Israel in the Old Testament, he 
gave them to Ten Commandments, but that's not the only thing he did. First, he rescued them by grace. Then he established a covenant with them. Then he came to live with them in his presence. And then he gave them ways to deal with ongoing relationships, which would need forgiveness and honor. Same with us and Christian marriages. We are given this gift of marriage, and we give ourselves to each other in a way we could never really earn. We establish a covenant, and then we are present with each other and need ways to deal with the ongoing stuff. And so I just, why am I saying all this? This is how I think about things. I think that we have every right to look at the Ten Commandments as part of what God does with with his people. And if we're going to imitate him, we need to have something like Leviticus, which is um, things to do to restore relationship and fellowship when it's damaged. And in a marriage, in parenting, the expectation should be that things are going to get damaged. What do we do to restore fellowship, to restore relationship? Galatians 6.1 is the guideline. You seek restoration in a spirit of gentleness. Otherwise, you just say, I'm not, I'm not ready to do this. I can't speak to this. I'm not qualified to help you because I'm not ready to do it in the spirit of gentleness, in the Holy Spirit of gentleness. Okay, enough about that. There's 13 minutes of that stuff. Let's just read some scripture. So we're in the book of Corinthians, and um, I really appreciate this book because it's so raw and the church is a mess, and it just reminds me of North America so much. And we are in verse 18. So I'm going to begin to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of God, sorry, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, unquote. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why don't we stop there? Now, if you heard last time, what we're saying is that uh, Paul is addressing a bunch of church issues here. And the church wrote him a letter that had questions about certain things. And Paul is going to get there eventually. But before he gets there, he wants to address things that they weren't talking about in the letter. And specifically what was going on is that the church was beginning to divide itself over um, things that were worldly accomplishments or worldly social uh, pride. They were setting themselves up to be divided over human pride. And so Paul wants to undercut that way of looking at the world and he's seeking unity by pointing out the fact that there's nothing proud about the cross of Christ from human view. So why would you go to any human structure to try to elevate yourself or discourage yourself or promote yourself when the cross of Christ totally is just foolishness and weakness in the eyes of the world? And yet we know it is God's 
way for actually bringing about salvation. And so the issue was, you know, they were um, lining themselves up as kind of the disciples of different teachers, and one person follows Paul, another person Cephas, another person Apollos, and the idea being that Peter is better than Paul, and so as a someone who follows Peter, I'm better than you because I got the better teacher, and and I'm all better, and it's it's almost like hockey teams, but uh, with spiritual. Uh, pride attached to it. So I follow the Oilers or I follow the Jets or I follow the Kings and guess who won? And my team is in first place and your team's in last place. And it's like a competition based on which teacher you're following behind. And Paul is here to say, um, how do you do that when the competition is who can be weakest and dumbest? Okay. Because he says, the gospel that these preachers preach, whether it's Peter or Apollos or Paul, if they're preaching the gospel, it is the gospel of the humiliation and failure of Christ. That's what it is. It's the, the gospel of the shame of God. So how do you get proud when the gospel is all about the shameful failure of Jesus? What? Yeah, exactly. The Jews look at the cross and that Jesus died hung from a tree, and they say, that is a cursed person. He's not the Messiah. He's cursed because the Bible says, cursed are those who hang on the tree. And the Greeks look at the idea of God saving humanity through raising some dead person from the dead, and they say, that's foolishness. The cross is an offense to one group of people. The cross is foolishness to another group of people. And that's the end of the story, unless God has really done something here. And God has really done something here. Through faith in the crucified Christ, you become forgiven and become the people of God and you become wise in God's sight because by faith you agree with what God has accomplished in Jesus. But this is what Paul's saying. By, by choice, God set up his salvation in such a way that everybody who looks at it from a pride point of view, will have to have their pride humbled to come to Jesus. The cross on its own, unless God really did raise Jesus from the dead as God and Savior, is just a waste and failure. He, he, he died. He, just, he was executed. He didn't put up a fight. His followers all scattered. And for the Greeks, you know, particularly, they had this aversion to calling physical bodies good. They, their, their way of looking at the world typically was that physical bodies were bad, but the unseen spiritual stuff was good. And so when you died, you were hoping that your, you know, your unseen spiritual self would go and be united with the other unseen stuff, which is all great, but the fleshly body is actually bad. So for, for people to be preaching, God resurrected an actual physical body that the Christ is going to have forever, and that you will too, if you believe, they were just thought it was so dumb. No, bodies are bad. To them, it would be almost like you were, you'd be saying heaven is like living inside of a gigantic sewer pit inside of a holding tank or a septic tank. Welcome to heaven. You're stuck inside of a septic tank. They'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because they, they many of them philosophically, they, they thought that bodies were just bad, that you want to get out of your body and stay there. So the idea of come to Jesus, he will keep you inside your body forever through the resurrection, and he's going to have a body forever. For them, they said, what? Why would I want to live in a toilet? That was kind of like what they were thinking. So Paul's point here is God has designed the cross that you're saved by someone's execution, 
and that you're resurrected into a permanent body, a resurrection body. He's designed the cross to humble everything that people found, find they can be proud of. Right, you want to be proud of wealth? Well, guess what? The Christ died broke. You want to be proud of your physical strength? Guess what? The Christ did not fight back when they pinned him to a piece of wood. You want to be proud of your religious accomplishments? Guess what? The Christ died cursed by God. So where, what, where does um, aligning yourself up for spiritual accomplishment come? How could that be what God wants from us? When he's actually, his own son failed pretty much every measure of success. And that's how he saved the world. And that's how we get saved. We look at failure. We look at shame and we say, beautiful. We look at shame and we say, my God in Christ we look at um, stupidity and we say the wisdom of God. How does that work? How, how do we do that? That's <laughs> pretty much what he's saying. And so he wants to undercut um, the things we look to to boost up pride in order to show how we're better than other people so that the church will humble themselves and stay in unity around Christ instead of seeking disunity about accomplishments. I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And so for us, what do we do? You know what? We, we, we often do the same thing, don't we? Our appearance, our money, uh, our status, our church size, our ministry size, um, what people think of us, Facebook pictures. You know, we, we do look for ways to kind of... Um, move ourselves up the ladder a little bit. Uh, I do it. Maybe you do it too. Uh, you know, and maybe you don't actually do it, but you feel like the, oh, I'm not succeeding in the eyes of the world. Or, oh, I'm not dieting right or exercising right. Oh, I'm not measuring right. Or how's my savings doing? Oh, and you know, it's just, we can go there so quickly. And I think what this passage calls us to, 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 to think is that, you know, if you live thinking like that somewhere along the lines, you're going to bring division to the church. You're going to despise somebody God doesn't despise. You're going to praise somebody God isn't praising. Or you're going to set up a distinction where God has not set up a distinction. And instead, we're supposed to come back to the Lord and say, Oh, God, many of the things I value are just not that valuable in your sight. And you've even designed the cross so that many of the things that I think are important need to die. And that doesn't necessarily mean I need to, to sell everything and burn everything down. It just means you, you take your heart and, and ask the Lord, God, would you show me what I really value? And where, where it's not you and your ways, can that go to the cross too and die so that I can enter into the resurrection life of God? God, where I've got things where I really am controlled by what I value, that is just not you. Can it come to the cross so it can die and then give me back what you want to give me as part of resurrection freedom and resurrection unity? And would you help me to seek the unity of the church? I think if we had that attitude, if we asked that question in prayer, God would be pleased and we would be walking um, in fellowship with the crucified Christ. So the Lord be with each one of you. I hope you have a great day and a great week, and we'll see you next time on The Midweeks.